As has been mentioned previously, it is indeed a thankful opportunity that we each have to God who's blessed us with the ability to gather this morning in His name to offer worship and homage and obeisance to Him and to do so in the way that He has commanded in His Word. And for that, truly, each of us have a great and marvelous privilege. The privilege of Christianity is always something that should rest before our minds and our thinking because that privilege is indeed so high and marked that you and I can wear the name of the Son of God. Christians we are. If any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. To quote 1 Peter 4 verse 16. This morning as we come to this portion of our, of our lesson, of our time together, I'd like to direct your attention to the little book of 3 John, in which we'll give some thought to some of the matters that John expressed to the gentleman to whom he wrote that book. A few moments ago in our hearing was read for us verses 5 through 7 of the book of 3 John. And so if you would, please be turning back to that particular passage. And in just a moment, we shall share some thoughts and some considerations from that little one-chapter book. As you'll see on that slide, the church is set before us in the New Testament in the most splendid of ways. It is to be a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Ephesians 5.27. The spotlessness, the blemishless nature of that church is highlighted in the way that the church goes about doing its activities and its works. Not only its worship, but in the way in which it touches the lives of those and the works that it does through benevolence or otherwise. And yet one of the things that has challenged the modern church has been its collection the way in which the contribution is to be viewed. I would hope this morning as we look at one of the statements that John made that we can refocus our efforts in thinking about how special it is to think about the collection as God has described it. It is with that in mind that I would invite your attention to one of those comments that John made. Now, as we build up to consider that, let's first place the collection into the overall scheme as the New Testament shows it to us, and then we will look more carefully at that statement that John made in 3 John verse 7. To point us in that direction, might we begin in the following way. First of all, the church and the placement that the collection has in it. One of the things that can be seen in this consideration is that we know the collection involves money. It involves this rather carnal, mundane thing that you and I consider to be money. And for that reason, some throughout the centuries have looked upon the collection as being a lesser significant part of worship. In the Lord's Supper, we remember the body and blood of Christ. As we sing, we glorify the name of God expressly and explicitly. As we open His Word and light to touch our lives, we do the same. But when it comes to the collection... Some have thus degraded it to a placement in which it seems to have very little importance overall to the notion of worship per se. That certainly doesn't seem to be the way the New Testament presents it because notice with me some of these verses. We learn immediately that the church is the blood-bought body of Christ. In Acts 20:28, 20, as Paul addressed those Ephesian elders, it was to them he said, "'Take heed unto yourselves.'" and to the church, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And immediately, since the church 
found its establishment based on the reality of Christ's shed blood, the church by its nature must be exceedingly significant, vitally important. And in fact, in Ephesians 5.23, it was to the churches of that era, of that era, that Paul made note that Christ is the Savior of the body. And that body is the church, Colossians 1.18. And thus, we appreciate then that the church is the one and only organization in which one finds eternal salvation. There is no other. No wonder the church is so vital and so essential. We might at this point pause to say the church is essential if one is going to go to heaven. To that person who has reached the age of accountability, no church, no membership therein, no eternal salvation. For again, Jesus is the Savior of the body. But what's more, you'll also note with me that God, by His majesty, has set forth various works in which the church is to be engaged, ranging from evangelism, teaching the lost, to benevolence, that is, to aiding in a physical way those who are in need, to edification, in which one directly exhorts and encourages to greater maturity in the faith and edifies to the nature of a stronger, more mature faith. All of those works are outlined in many ways in the New Testament, and they all have the marvelous stamp of God's approval upon them. But one thing that's very interesting to note is that those works require money. When one thinks about, for instance, evangelism, those missionaries that we support here, those works of edification in which teachers use supplies in their classrooms, those require funds of a monetary character to obtain them, to purchase them, to develop them, to make them available. And thus the work of the church involves money. Not per se that one should focus on that exclusively, but to carry it out. It involves money. No wonder then we find the contribution and the collection mentioned in the New Testament because those funds allow the church to carry out its work and thus bring proper glory and proper honor unto God. I've listed out there to the right a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As Paul made reference to, in fact, the work of evangelism, he made the statement that money would be involved, funds if you please, to provide payment for those who would proclaim and preach the gospel. And so we have completely the approval of God to provide financial support to a missionary or to a person anywhere who is proclaiming the truth of God's gospel. For isn't it still the case that a man should live of the gospel in the sense of being able to be supported by it? Again, that passage in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12. Thus, that helps us see that if one is not proclaiming the gospel, we should not be supporting that man, for we shouldn't bid God speed to those who are the workers in false doctrine, those who encourage things that are separate and apart from the truth of God. All that challenges us to notice that there was even a pattern of this in John 12, verse 6 in that day in which the Lord was still alive here on earth, and He and His disciples went about doing those things that were noble and honorable and good. Judas was the one who held the bag, John 12, verse 6. And so we see a kind of treasury arrangement 
even in that arena in which that funding could then be used to carry out the various things that the Lord would find pleasing. Isn't it significant that we find the following command? We need not only consider the ways of the Lord's working in John 12. What about that commandment in 1 Corinthians 16 beginning in verse 1? It was true that as Paul had given orders to the churches of Galatia, and might we take note that that was an order. It was not a suggestion. It was not merely that left to their own choosing. It was an order from the God of heaven. Even so do ye. Let every one of you lay by him in store. God has prospered him on the first day of the week that there be no gatherings when I come. There was thus this commandment to lay by in store each one of you as God hath prospered him. And by inspiration that has carried forth through the centuries and thus is a part of the way in which you and I engage in the collection even this morning as God has prospered us. You'll notice that again was an order. It hasn't been left for us to set that aside as an insignificant, trivial, flippant, or unimportant part of the worship. It is as vital as the others. In fact, it is in that regard. I would ask you to notice in Acts 2, verse 42, on the very day the church began, the day of Pentecost, that verse simply says, and they continued steadfastly with the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. It has often been an impressive thing to us, I'm sure, to notice that in that single passage, on the day of the church's birth, notice how many of the acts of worship one finds mentioned continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. That notion of fellowship, as the Greek word suggests it, actually would have reference to not only the means of community association or encouragement of one another, there's an aspect of the collection even in it. On the very day the church began. Isn't it interesting then to notice that though you and I may think of money in a mundane way, it is vital for the work of the church so that that work can be carried out. It is in that regard, the bottom of that slide brings the following note to our attention. When Paul made an extended discussion of the contribution and collection to that church in Corinth, in verses 8 and 9 of that chapter, the following quotation in the King James Version is found. It is, in fact, the proof of the sincerity of your love. Do you and I think as often as we should that our collection illustrates the proof, the sincerity, if you please, in regard to our love? That says a lot, doesn't it? If the plate is passed and we find 50 cents to throw in it, when in fact we perhaps are going to devote $8 this afternoon to a movie... What does that say then about the nature where the highest of our appreciations lie and where are our priorities? It is to be noted that Paul wrote in writing to the Corinthians, made note to them, it's the proof of the sincerity of your love. It is with that in mind I would use that to take us to this next slide in which we can now start to ask some more basic questions. We've talked about how important the contribution is. And how that, from the perspective of the New Testament church, it is an essential matter to fund its works. But that leads us to a very good question, and it is a personal one. How much should I give? 
Maybe you've been asked that question by someone else. How much should I contribute? I cannot make an answer to that for you just as surely as you can't for me. But there are some principles that you and I can utilize to assist us and to aid us in at least approaching that question. First of all, it is true in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, as Paul continued to discuss this matter of the contribution, it is noted that as he purposeth in his heart, it thus must be a determined decision that you and I make. It should not be a hastily mattered thing. It should not be determined just as an afterthought. It's to be purposed. Set aside beforehand that this is what I will contribute. This is what I will give because it's the appropriate and it is the right thing. That word purpose does indicate a very significant matter relating to our contribution. Paul in the same passage, one verse earlier, verse 6, made note that one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, and one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And as surely as the contribution was in that context of discussion, there is no doubt the suggestion, the implication that one's giving should be bountiful. Now that still leads us to ask, what does it mean to say it's bountiful? How much does that mean for me? Well, today we've learned about purposing it, and we've now learned about the fact that it should be bountiful. Since it is the case, as we noted earlier, that this collection, this contribution, is an emblem of the proof of your sincerity and your love and mine, does that then mean I should give everything I've got? Because we're told in Mark 12, verse 30, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And so if our love is to be that complete and that entire, does that then mean we must give everything that we have, every dollar, every, every dime, every penny? Does that, is that what that indicates? In fact, might we see if we can answer that? Isn't it interesting that there was a poor widow in Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, as Jesus observed that there were many casting into the treasury, many of their abundance, the text says, were casting in much, and yet there was this poor widow who cast in two mites. Jesus commended her because it says that she gave all of her living. Should you and I do that? Well, might I invite you to look at the following set of ideas. First of all, God understands well that there are obligations of a physical character, obligations to ourselves and our families. That is set forth in 1 Peter 5, 8. Those who do not take care of their own have denied the faith and are worse than an infidel. And Paul was expressly describing those physical demands and obligations of life. It is incumbent upon us to take care of those physical matters of life. So that alone suggests that we are not to literally cast everything into the collection plate. And as if that weren't significant enough, ponder some of the great individuals of the sacred scriptures. Examples like Abraham. Was Abraham a wealthy man? Did he give everything physically and literally to God? David was a wealthy man. Joseph was a wealthy man. Jacob was a wealthy man. 
All of those wealthy individuals of Old Testament lore reminds us that even in the New Testament there were those that were well-to-do. We do not find that literally they gave everything by virtue of financial means to a collection. But rather they had the understanding that God wished them to use that in encouragement and magnification of His will. And thus, we shouldn't conclude that we are bad individuals or that we are displeasing to God if we literally do not empty the bank account and give everything to God in that way. God wants us to use those funds to carry out His work. And He wants us to be ready to employ them to His honor and His service. But certainly that involves taking care of those we love, taking care of the duties that would be serviceable to ensuring that their needs are met. In addition to that, we thus are reminded, as we noted earlier, that we are to give as we've been prospered. That indicates we each shouldn't be giving the same amount. That person who happens to have a job but he makes half a million dollars a year, God would expect that man to give more literally and financially to the collection than that person struggling making $15,000 a year. That's understandable. But each is to give as he has been prospered, as she has been prospered. And so we each must ask that question, how have I been prospered this week? How have you been prospered this week? Does my collection reflect that? If you've gotten a raise in the last year, perhaps a sizable one, did your contribution rise as well? That's something to think about, isn't it? If God has sufficiently allowed your job to be bountiful in these difficult economic times, and perhaps you've enjoyed much, has, has your collection reflected that blessing? Has my collection reflected that blessing? We are to give as we have been prospered. You'll notice that one of the final things is what that word in the Greek means. That word literally means to lead along a good path or to guide well. To the degree that God has led you along a good physical path and that you've been guided well by Him, does your contribution and does mine reflect that goodness, His leadership and His provision in that, in, in that regard? Perhaps in finality, as you give some thought to that slide, as I noted earlier, it, the Bible does not give a dollar amount for you and a dollar amount for me. It says we must purpose, give bountifully, never grudgingly, but rather God loves a cheerful giver, and we are to give indeed as we have been prospered. As we use those thoughts, that will help us decide a course of action in our giving that will not only be pleasing to God, that will be satisfactory to the church and its having sufficient funds to carry out the works we mentioned earlier. All of that brings us, though, to another question. Who are the ones that God expects to give? Who are the ones that God, in fact, would require to contribute to His cause? It is in that regard we come to this passage in 3 John this morning. Who are the ones that God expects to give? Who are the ones to support the church's work? Should, in fact, you and I expect those people in the nation of India to pay those preachers that we send there? Should we expect them to contribute even any to it, to that work? Does the Bible say? What's God's expectation on that point? 
maybe this morning we shall find an answer in the text before us. In fact, as we begin looking through that, I think it only wise that we remember the setting of the book of 3 John. Maybe we do not refer to 3 John as often as we do some other New Testament books, but it is a one-chapter book, very near the end of the New Testament. It is a very special and unique letter written by the aged Apostle John. In it, it is addressed to a gentleman named Gaius, and Gaius is highly complimented. In fact, as the letter opens, the Apostle John especially makes note, beginning in verse 5, that Gaius had been a great blessing to some who had come through that area. Those who had worked in the name of the gospel, spreading the gospel, doing the work of God, and Gaius had provided to them some marked hospitality. In fact, it would seem that he perhaps opened his house to them and allowed them a place to dwell. In fact, as we give thought to that, you'll notice that this was long before the days of holiday inns and long before the days of Ramada hotels. In fact, even long before the days of Motel 6. This was a time when one didn't have familiar and comfortable lodging places that were known for safety. So if one went to preach the gospel or to do any other work of God, one would have needed the encouragement and support provided by some members of the church, it would seem. Gaius had fulfilled that calling. He had, in fact, done a remarkable work of hospitality, and John, in fact, encouraged in verse 8, this should have been done. You did right, Gaius. And perhaps in principle we can appreciate that at least something like that you and I should keep on our mind today. The notice of that hospitality and that generosity that Gaius shared. In the course of that discussion, though, there is a distinction made. First of all, John mentions brethren. It would seem that some who came through the area, Gaius knew them. Perhaps by previous association, maybe by association with another congregation, but he knew them. Maybe it wouldn't have been shocking for him to show hospitality to them. But he also notes, and strangers. There also apparently were some individuals that Gaius did not personally know, and yet he also shared to them with hospitality. That helps us imagine today that even strangers, those who are doing the work of God, now that demands that we determine they're doing the work of God. We ask them questions, we scrutinize their efforts, we determine that which they're doing. If we find it to be of God, despite the fact we may not have known them before, we may well find means to support them, encourage them in that work. Even that, though, is not all. In verse number 7, John goes on to say that as these brethren came to you and did their work, they came in the matter of the name. What a great name they followed, the name of Christ. What a great name you and I follow today, the name of Christ. But John quickly states, taking nothing of the Gentiles. The monetary support, the support that they received was not to be taken from the Gentiles. And that word Gentiles has reference to those that were heathen, those that were unbelievers, those had no appreciation for the work. Take nothing of them. 
they are to have no part in and offer no support for this work that you're doing. You and I, you see, as we support a missionary, it shouldn't be our intent and our desire for that missionary to support the preacher we're sending. He would have no appreciation to support that man, for as of yet, he hasn't come to appreciate the reason the man is there. He hasn't come to appreciate the great message of the gospel that that man brings, taking nothing of the Gentiles. What might that say about the support for the church? We've laid the emphasis thus far today on the nature of the contribution. Are there other ways, though, that the church can be funded? What if the government chose to support? Should we accept money from the government? What if companies in Cookville chose or at least expressed an interest in supporting the work of the church? Doesn't this indicate we must be exceedingly careful? Is that man contributing it a member of the body? Is he a believer? We would have to determine it. Take nothing of the Gentiles. The collection, you see, is not just an arbitrary matter of getting the most money we can. It has behind it the notion of why was it given? Was it given in appreciation of the one who died for the sins of everybody? Was it given in understanding of what the church is and the work it's to do? If not, this passage paints a dramatic picture we must call into question and perhaps refuse to accept monies from sources like that. You'll notice that there are times that the human family has inched closer to opening the collection to anything that can put more money into the coffers. And certainly the denominational world and the Catholic world has thrown those doors as wide open as one can imagine throwing them. Because the more money, the better in their mind. It's immaterialist as the source and immaterialist to the reason it's given. But it is still true that John said, taking nothing of the Gentiles. When he made that reference to Gaius, you'll notice that the next gentleman mentioned in this entire passage is Diotrephes. Diotrephes not only was not complimented, he was condemned in this passage because he loved to have the preeminence. He was one who desired to be a controlling, influencing factor so that all decisions had to go through him. That wasn't his place. And based on the context, it would seem that one of the matters explicitly in Diotrephes was he would not accept John or the things that John taught, which would have included, it would seem, this matter of taking care of these traveling brethren who preach the truth. Could it thus be? that as these traveling preachers came into the area, that Gaius was so willing and so interested to aid them and to support them, but the Diotrephes said no, because maybe he didn't appreciate the message they were preaching. And it would be in that regard, again, taking nothing of the Gentiles. May we be thankful for God's instruction concerning the collection and the way in which that collection is to be utilized for the employment of the goodness in God's service and kingdom. As you come near the close of that slide, I would remind you of perhaps of one final thing, taking nothing of the Gentiles. Keep in mind that that word Gentiles is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. At times it just refers to those that were non-Jew, but at times it referred to those that were heathen. 
And that is the manner in which it's employed here. Thus, for those that are unbelievers, when the collection plate is passed before us today, God doesn't demand and expect that you contribute. It's when you become a member of the body and have your sins forgiven in baptism, that's when you have an obligation. It's when you thus have before you a means whereby God expects of you to contribute as you've been prospered. As we give thought to that today, in a moment we're going to participate in that collection. We'll do that right before we do, of course, the Lord's Supper. As we close this lesson, though, let me summarize it, if I mind, in these words. The collection is a significant part of worship. In fact, I'm thankful that we at Pippin elevate it to the position that it has. There are those in other places perhaps that you and I have visited in which it would seem by the way it's done, get it over with as quick as possible and get on to something else. Our collection shouldn't be viewed that way. It is a part whereby we have a dramatic role to play in the support of God's work. We are fellow laborers with Him, 1 Corinthians 3, 9. And as such, we have the opportunity to contribute and thus to allow His work to be carried out in evangelism, in edification, or in benevolence. And to that extent, we've thus addressed, the contribution is commanded. It's not optional just to not collect it but once a month. It's to be done the first day of every week. What's more, We've also learned who is to give and how much we give as we've been prospered and as we've purposed in our heart with a cheerful attitude. And then finally, those who are to give are those who are members of the body of Christ, appreciative of that notion, understanding the placement that they set before God. And of course, as we teach others of that way and the significance found in it, it is a meaningful exercise. Today, if you are not a member of the body of Christ, a person not in a saved state before God. If you've reached that age that you know Christ died for you, why do you remain in that state? It's so risky. It's so dangerous. Because if Christ were to come back, if you were to pass away from this life, where would you be? In a regretful state of wishing you had obeyed the gospel. This afternoon... Very as we approach the noon hour today, in fact, if you would like to respond publicly to the gospel call of invitation, we would be honored to make note of your belief and your repentance, but then, of course, to listen to your wonderful confession and to observe your baptism. If we could help you in that, we would be honored. If you, though, have become a Christian at some former time, but you have become unfaithful, You've begun to walk in a way that's not right before God, and others are aware of that. You need to make a public statement to them so that they know your repentance, and they can forgive you. If today we can help you in either of those ways, please let us know if you would. While together we stand and while we sing this chosen hymn.